0: Christ is risen! He is risen indeed. Amen. We could really, with all the songs we sang, the great truth about the gospel and the work that is finished on the cross, uh, the Lord has really blessed us with, with good doctrinal truth that we can sing and rejoice over this morning. Have you ever wanted to tell a story And everybody around you already thinks they know it. So you might get a little help, right? Maybe a little interruptions or corrections. Now, this is how it went, or this is how it went. And, oh, let me just tell it. I can tell it better and faster. I kind of feel that way as we approach John chapter 20 this morning. We've just sung about the resurrection. We wouldn't be gathering here today as believers if There wasn't an understanding of the resurrection. And what more can we add to this very uh, well-known and greatly appreciated truth? And so this morning, I don't expect to surprise you with any new details. I just want us to be faithful to rehearsing our faithful God's good work of grace. And to remember that old story that becomes more and more important to us the longer we walk with Jesus. Because He didn't have to do it. God could have destroyed everything and started over again. But He chose to redeem sinners like us. So, this morning, we're looking at John chapter 20, and we, we see, as it were, John writing to Jewish readers. He's writing to people who know a lot of History about Judaism because they are Jews. He's also writing to people who think they've heard it all about Jesus. But what they've heard has been distorted. You see, uh, Matthew records this in his gospel in chapter 28. He tells us that the chief priests, when the soldiers who were guarding the tomb came to them and told them about the earthquake, about the angels, about the fact that the tomb is empty, they were there all night posting guard like they were supposed to, and the prisoner has been set free. You wouldn't have expected that out of a dead man, but he's been raised to life. And so the chief priests bribe these men and they tell him to say that Jesus' disciples stole his body. And, jo- and Matthew goes on to say this, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So John, is he, he's the last of the gospel writers to write his gospel. Matthew's out there, Mark's out there, Luke is out there, but John is writing to Jews who think they know the story, and he wants to show them some facts that perhaps they haven't considered. He adds some details, details which prove the disciples had nothing to do with this. In fact, they were afraid. They weren't expecting Jesus to be a lion. And some of the facts that bear witness to the testimony of John is that a woman is the first on the scene to report, and that the disciples indeed show fear and unbelief, and that the power of the Holy Spirit was necessary to be forgiven. Let's look at verses 1 through 10 of John 20. I hope that you'll follow along in your Bible. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself." Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And Then the disciples went back to their homes. So here's the facts. There's an empty tomb. It's a shocking discovery, and, and Mary, other Gospels talk about other women being with her, but Mary Magdalene is there on the scene, and she has no idea where Jesus has been taken. So she rushes back to tell the disciples, Simon and John, what she has discovered. They don't believe her, and so they go and have a foot race. You would think perhaps they're motivated by anger, how disrespectful to take Jesus or its fear. Where have they taken him? Perhaps there was talk already of building a shrine in his honor or erecting some kind of monument. Or maybe when the heat dies down, taking him away and, and putting him in a place where they could view his grave with less suspicion. We don't know exactly what happens. John is just recording or the the thoughts of the men at this point. John is simply recording it. And as he gets to verses 5 and 7, we see details that remind us of John chapter 11 when Lazarus was raised. Remember, his body was prepared for burial as well. He was wrapped in linen cloths. His face was covered. And Jesus, when he called him forth, says, "'Unbind him and let him loose.'" But what are we to make of John's observations in verses 5 through 7 about the clothing, the grave clothes that Jesus wore? You you notice that the linen cloths that were wrapped around his body were in one place, then the, the head covering was folded up and laid in another place. So every parent, is the point of this passage to tell your kids, be like Jesus, clean your rooms? No, that's not the point. Some kids should have said amen there. I'm on your side, okay? John's pointing out that something unusual has happened here. And you think about it. If, if Jesus' tomb is guarded, and if someone wants to steal a body out of a grave, you're moving fast, and you're definitely not unwrapping that corpse and taking the time to fold up stuff and set it over here and put other stuff over there. I mean, whether you are the disciples, or whether you are a grave robber, or whether you are the chief priests who are trying to take him away and bury him somewhere else where no one will know and there will be no memory of him, regardless, no one is going to take the time to do what appears to have been done, an unwrapping, a revealing. John wants us to believe that Jesus' body was not stolen. In fact, that Jesus rose and left evidence behind. These are the facts of these verses. And as we look at verses 8 and 10, we see John adding some biographical information for us. The other disciple, that's himself, who had reached the tomb first, Went in and he saw and believed. Here's John giving us part of his own story and testimony. Guys, I didn't understand it. As he's quick to say in verse 9, the disciples didn't know the teaching of scriptures that he must be risen from the dead. They didn't understand that. And John's saying, This was a pivotal point in my life. The resurrection of Jesus is when all the pieces fit together. Peter would later provide his own testimony in his first sermon after Pentecost. If you would, turn over to Acts with me. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 very briefly this morning. I want to share this. We have John's thoughts here. But Peter is waiting. The disciples are waiting for the Spirit to come, and Pentecost is that day, uh, Acts 2. Let's pick up at verse 25. Peter, speaking by the power of the Spirit, is trying to tell the people who were shocked by the fact that they are hearing their native tongue coming out of the mouths of people who were not trained in it, and they were gathering together for this great sign, trying to understand. Peter says this about Jesus in verse 24, that God raised him up, losing the pangs of death Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. This is the scripture they didn't understand in John 20. But then by the time John is writing it, he gets it. And Peter certainly has it just 50 days later. What does David quote? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? Because here's the hope of every believer that Paul will expand on in 1 Corinthians 15. It comes right here in Acts 2 verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Because Jesus lives, we have a future beyond this life. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have full assurance that when he says it is finished about our sin and his atonement on the cross, that it indeed is true. Because if it weren't finished, he'd still be in a hole somewhere. He would still be buried away in a rock. He would still be dead. Peter goes on to say, look at this. In verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is Peter's testimony. The empty tomb was not the plot of disciples. The message of the New Testament is is this. It's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And that the Jesus that we preach to the nations today is the Savior for all nations in the world. Let's go back to John chapter 20. We're told in verse 10 the disciples went back to their homes. Well, who could blame them? I mean, there is no body. At this point, in real time, they didn't know what had happened to Jesus, only that he was gone. And until Jesus shows up, the disciples are left in limbo. And we see that. John goes on in verses 11 through 29, not only has he presented the facts here in the first 10 verses that the tomb was empty and the disciples had nothing to do with it, but now he shows the foolishness of the gospel witness. Because the testimony that John draws from is first from a woman, which in Jewish court of law, a woman would not be called as a witness. This is really sexist. This isn't me. This isn't South Canyon. This is the way it was at this time in the Bible. So By having the first and primary witness being a woman, John already knows that his Jewish readers will have a huge stumbling block here. They won't like the fact. But he is not trying to massage the story so that it makes it more convincing. He's telling the truth. But it's not just that there was a woman who found this and was the first to go back and tell the disciples and bring them to the tomb. But then John goes on in these verses, all the way through the end of verse 29, to show us just how brave and how courageous these disciples were. They were locked up in a room, scared to death. So instead of it being a revisionist history where John is saying, hey, let me tell you why this is true, because there were thousands of people that saw it, and all these key leaders were there and they witnessed it and everyone was cheering it on and he walked out and we were all there waiting. No, what does John say? He says, you're not going to believe this, but the best witness is a woman first and where were the guys? They were all hiding. It doesn't pave the way for an easy reception of the gospel, does it? But this is the truth. Let's read it. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pause there for a moment as we look at the the weakness of the gospel argument. In these verses, 11 through 18, the first witness is Mary. For some reason, after John and Peter left, she stays behind. And according to John's gospel, this is the second time she'd been at the tomb that morning. The first time, discovering it open and empty. And now she's here with time to think. And she's heartbroken. You see, see, she's not only aware that these evil men killed her teacher, But now it appears that they've stolen his body so that no one could worship, could see him to visit, and her grief is blinding her. Did you notice this in verses 12 through 15? She has no idea that she's talking to angels. In fact, she has no idea that the guy standing behind her is Jesus. Now much has been made about his parents changing and all that. John doesn't mess with that. I think what John wants us to see is this. We can experience such grief in our lives that it blocks out any view of God. Some of us are there right now. and Some of us have been there before. And it's no small thing to stand over the grave of a loved one and remind yourself that Christ is risen. That this this body has fallen to the curse, but that God has promised to raise a body that is incorruptible. This is the hope of every Christian. And so when you are in grief, let me just say to you as I would to Mary, listen for the voice of your master, because he's going to speak to you. Uh, we're not guaranteed he's going to stand behind us and look like the guy at the gas station or the guy at the grocery store or the lady picking up her kids from school. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God spoke to Mary, he used her name, and then he commissioned her. You look at this, we might think, well, why is he saying, get off of me? You know, it would be natural. When she finally hears him and sees him for who he is, she's latched on to him. The Messiah is indeed alive. I saw him with my own eyes die, and now he's here. I cannot believe this. And her joy has just got her affixed to Jesus. And he's like, we don't have time for this. I've got a message for you to carry to my brother's. Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel, they talk about Jesus telling them to go and meet him in Galilee. Here is Jesus, comforted a woman, overwhelmed by her grief, and he wants her to take a message back to his brothers in verse 17. What's the big deal about him about to ascend to his father as he speaks in verse 17? Notice he says, he describes The disciples as brothers, in keeping with what he said in John 17, I no longer call you disciples, but brothers, this new relationship that they have with Christ. But he also says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. To know Jesus as the one who conquered sin and death for your sins is to have a radically reshaped relationship with the God of creation. He is no longer aloof and distant. He is no longer someone to be afraid of. He is your God and your Father, and you are welcomed into His presence. He wants to see His disciples He addresses them as brothers, and here Mary, we're told in verse 18 that she returns, and she tells the disciples that she has seen the Lord. She carries this message. In a way, it's a precursor to evangelism. She has been given the good news, and she goes and announces the good news that Jesus is alive. And that's the same message that we've been given. And why should that matter to anyone? Because he has put an end to sin for all who trust in him. Picking up at verse 19, let's read down through to verse 29. We've seen the woman. Now let's see the disciples. On the evening of that day, same day, just later. The first day of the week, of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And again, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Luke tells us, "...that the apostles viewed the woman's testimony as an idle tale, and that they did not believe them. But Peter ran, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened." John's record of Peter and John himself going to the tomb also supports not only the argument that a woman's testimony was not held in high regard that even those disciples didn't believe Mary. How ironic that the only witness is both a woman and it is Mary Magdalene, the woman whom Christ cast out seven demons. You see, the weakness of the gospel isn't just that its first witness to the resurrection was a woman, but it's also in the fact that his first appearance to the disciples as a group, finds them locked up, scared, and unwilling to believe. And so we see here, that night of His resurrection, He makes His first appearance to His fearful disciples in verse 19, and then He shows proof that it is He who is in their midst. And what's significant about this twofold pronouncement of peace in verse 19 and 21 is that not only does grief blind us, but so does fear. Believing the gospel will cost you something. If you ever hear any preacher, any Bible person on the radio, a podcast, wherever it may be, on YouTube, who tells you Jesus is plus. He's everything in addition. It costs you nothing. You can add this to your life as as though he's an accessory. Let me just tell you that is so wrong. You need to run from that person. Following Jesus will cost you, it'll cost you your life. Because now you have to lay down your will to follow the will of your Savior. Now you have to fight the flesh that you've so long given into. Now you have to deal with the consequences that all your friends may not like you as much anymore because you keep talking about what Jesus has done for you. These guys had a real fear. They knew what had happened to Jesus. Jesus. And they were afraid that the Gestapo of the Jewish police would break down their door and haul them out and kill them as well. They're terrified. And their fear blinds them to the testimony of Mary. It, she saw, they saw. Things were laid out in a way that you had to wrestle with it. Then she comes back and tells them, I've seen the Lord, this is His message for you. And they are still holed up and scared. And they still struggle with faith because their fear is so great. Jesus had told them in another gospel, Matthew records it in chapter 10 and verse 28, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. They're afraid of the wrong thing. And let me just say, if God is working in your heart, if, if the Spirit is bringing things to mind of sins and a leaning towards the gospel, and you're afraid to follow the gospel then you need to understand there's bigger things to be afraid of than what you are afraid of. It may cost you something at work. Standing up for Christ may cost you something with your classmates. Let me just say, nothing that we could ever lose is worth what we gain in Christ. There is just so much grace here. Jesus does the same thing with the disciples that He did with Mary in verse 17. You notice in verse 21 through 23, He reveals Himself to her. He speaks peace to them. He tells them, as the Father has sent me into this world to be a witness of the gospel, so I am sending you. And then there's debate on verse 22 on whether He's breathing on them and trying to give them the Holy Spirit, and it kind of like got stuck until Acts 2, or whether this is all just a precursor and and it's more of a sigh rather than him like Jesus or like God in the garden with Adam, uh, Genesis 2, he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. There's echoes of that here, but Jesus is doing something even more significant. He's saying the authority that God has given me, I'm now giving to you. I prepared you for this moment. I've sanctified you with my word, John 17, 17. I've sanctified you with my own blood, John 19, 30. And I've told you in chapters 14 through 16, the Spirit is going to come soon and that happens in Acts 2. He is going to give you the power to have boldness where you are afraid. He's going to give you the words to remember, the things that I've taught, things you've not written down, and you weren't paying attention because you were jockeying for position, and you were fighting over who's going to carry the food and who's going to carry the money and whatnot. He is going to bring all that to, uh, to your mind so that you will learn just as I demonstrated my dependence on the Father to proclaim the gospel, you will demonstrate your dependence on the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. You see, following Jesus in obedience is just as hard as it is to teach others to follow Jesus in obedience. One is not easier than the other, and we need the Spirit for both. We have been given eternal life All who trust in Christ have been given eternal life. That's John 3.16. And that even includes new life here in this world. We see it back at the beginning of John 1 in verse 12 and 13. He speaks of it in John 8 that He's setting us free from our slavery to sin. And we can never lose sight of the fact that we do walk by faith, not by sight, but we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We've been sent to carry on Jesus' mission. And John is doing that with his readers. He wants them to know he is testifying that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he calls them to believe this. Are we doing the same thing? Tyler prayed for our evangelism as a church in the prayer this morning. I'd encourage you to pray, pray, pray that God would help you to have opportunity and eyes to share this good news. And to even if you get pushed back for it, to not shrink away because of that. Jesus points forward to Pentecost when he says, the Spirit, I'm going to give you the Spirit. He's going to equip you to do the mission. And that comes 50 days after his death. Acts 2 shows us the resulting act of Jesus' redemption and deliverance from sin. That God is going to form a new people based on a new covenant of grace. And no longer are they bound to live by a set of external standards. The Spirit is in them actually helping them to obey Christ. But it doesn't stop here. Jesus comes back, we're told, because Thomas wasn't there. Again, this is just an indicator that the disciples had scattered like cockroaches. There weren't many of them gathered together. They were afraid. And so Thomas wasn't there in this first coming of Jesus when he's dealing with the disciples' fear. And so he announces that he would never believe what anybody said until he physically touched Jesus. So as we look at verses 26 through 29, we see... Eight days later, Jesus shows up the same miraculous way, entering a room that's secured. Troy and the security team are not happy about that. But Thomas is there. And once again, Jesus announces peace to them. A peace that calms the fearful heart. But in this situation, a peace that adjusts the doubting heart. Look at what Thomas, Jesus confronts him. I mean, how is it that he knew what Thomas had said? I mean, that just goes again to the mind blowing reality that Jesus is God. And he tells Thomas exactly the same things that Thomas had said Unless I see in his hands the mark and put my finger into it and then place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And what does Jesus say? Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And this is astounding. He's confronting his lack of faith, he's presenting irrefutable evidence to a guy who is scared and who doesn't believe. And this is just another example of how not only can grief blind us to the work of God so can fear and so can doubt and yet god is gracious to address these very things in the lives of his followers he addresses grief by his presence and his words he addresses fear by his presence And his words. He addresses doubt by his presence and his words. Are you getting to see the rhythm here? The word of God is our evidence of peace with God. It is the thing we must go to to hear from God when we are struggling with insurmountable grief, insurmountable fear, insurmountable doubt. Go to the Word. Don't run from it. Don't isolate yourself with that fear, that grief, and that doubt. Instead, go to the Word, and you will encounter the living Jesus, and He will give you the peace that you need. Jesus knew exactly where Thomas was and he confronted his unbelief head on. And Thomas can only say what? In verse 28, my Lord and my God. This is a man who is brought to his knees in the presence of greatness. Not only had Jesus known what he said and addressed it, but he is there, literally there. It reminds me of John 6 where Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well after he's teaching this hard truth that you need to trust in his work and eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved, that, that the cross was necessary to his exaltation and that we need to trust in a Savior who was crucified. And what does Peter answer him and say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've also believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what does Our passage closes with Jesus pronouncing a blessing on those, in verse 29, those who have not seen but will believe. And this must not have been lost on Peter because in 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the Christian life. A life of forgiveness. A life of peace in the midst of fear, of grief, of doubt. A life that is convinced that Jesus has worked the salvation of our souls. The word of the cross, Paul says, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. John is not trying to make the gospel message more palatable by erasing what truly happened in order to prop up a false narrative. He is willing to preach a gospel that shows foolishness to the world. Jewish leaders, Jewish men, a woman's testimony, nah. Uh, this idea that his, his men must be brave and bold and just out in front, nah. They're there, locked away in a room, scared stiff. It's foolishness. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You're hearing the gospel this morning because God wants you to know that He loves sinners in order that you could be reconciled to Him through faith in the work that Christ has done. It is finished. Will you believe That's the conclusion John has. Look at verses 30 and 31. It's very simple and very pointed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John writes, Jesus did a whole lot more than I could write down. But here in this concluding episode of the resurrection, we see that the antidote to grief, fear, unbelief, and to our sin is to believe in the resurrected Jesus who sends his brothers into the world with the good news of forgiveness. And that provides comfort, peace, and faith. What John has written, he has written in order to convince us to believe in Jesus and in that faith in Christ to experience eternal life. This is his purpose statement for the entire book of John. Why do we need to believe in Jesus? Why does this matter to any of us today? It matters because we are sinners who are living out our days under the wrath of God, and then after that, there is something even worse than what this world could have ever provided. A day of final judgment. And Jesus, who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, is asking you to wrestle with the facts and to believe in Him as your Savior from your sin. What will you do? Lord God, we pray. We pray for the salvation to come through Jesus to be poured out upon this body, this gathering today. May men, women, and children who hear the word be convinced by the Spirit that it is indeed the truth to live by. All who believe in you will come and stand before you and be welcomed into your presence all who reject you are already condemned because we refuse to believe in the name of the only Son of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, help those who are in this room who don't know you to come to know you, and help those of us who do know you, that we would be filled with such boldness and joy and peace and confidence and faith and courage, that we would be able to go into this world and share this good news. God, we thank you for the work that you've accomplished on the cross and your victory over death. And we bless your name. In Jesus we pray, amen.